0: This is episode 88 of The New Disruptors. Set your radio dial to maximum fun with Jesse Thorne. Permanent archives at newdisrupt.org. This episode of The New Disruptors is sponsored in part by 99designs. Have dozens of designers from the over 310,000 that are part of 99designs' network submit ideas for your logo, website, t-shirt, car wrap, or other design project. Then pick the best and have a finished professional result in a week or less for a flat price. Our listeners can visit 99designs.com disruptors to get a $99 power pack of services for free. Thanks also to our Patreon backers for supporting us directly. Thanks this week to CJ Tully, James Rabilliard, and Ben Wordmuller for their support. Visit patreon.com/newdisruptors, that's patreon.com slash newdisruptors, that's patreo ncom to help support this podcast. You can contribute as little as $1 a month. At higher levels, we thank you on the air like this, and send you mugs and t-shirts. Welcome to The New Disruptors, a podcast that claims that the following is based on a true story. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman, the editor and publisher of The Magazine. Jesse Thorne is a polycast. He's a polymath of podcasts. He helped define the form by taking a show that he developed with others on a college radio station and made available as a podcast in 2004. That show, The Sound of Young America, is now called Bullseye, and it focuses on interesting cultural trends and sports, in-depth interviews, It's distributed by NPR as of last year. He also hosts and produces Jordan Jesse Go with Jordan Morris, co-hosts and produces Judge John Hodgman, owns the site MaximumFun.org, produces and contributes to the men's style site Put This On, runs a cruise, and a conference. Jesse, thank you
1: for having me in your studio. I'm sorry that we took up all of the time (laughs) that we had. Just now, listing all of my different jobs. You don't do too many things, do you? <laughs> this is
0: the life of someone making their own career, apparently. I also have two children under four. <laughs> that doesn't take any time. I'm father of two as well. It takes it's no time at all. Easy, they raise yeah, themselves. And, yeah, pretty much, yeah. And uh, but so, you know, I've been listening to you for years and years. And in fact, I think what you've done with your career has inspired a lot of people in podcasting because you've stuck with it. You've been a decade in a form helping develop it, show what it could do.
1: Despite my lack of success.
0: Well, that's – I want to talk about – I know. I want to talk about that because this is – well, so as we record this, not that long ago, Adam Carolla just settled with the folks uh, who were suing him. I forgot. Personal Audio. uh, Because Personal Audio said, in part, uh, we found out that even Adam Carolla is not making that much money. (laughs) <laughs> so the podcasting world, we know, as I can tell, it testified is a very small show, and I know people run very large ones. Podcasting isn't itself really lucrative, but it's an interesting format, and we we drift to it. And it's something, I think, different than radio. Radio has a different feel, a different shape. Even though I know your show's distributed, sometimes you have to cut podcasts in a different way. And I talked to uh, Roman Mars about that before, about how 99% invisible is it's cut differently. What do you see as different between more conventional radio, which you came out of from a college station, and what you can explore with and do in a podcast format?
1: Yeah, I mean, I came out of it on a college station. I mean, I am still like, if I am at a party or something like that, and someone asks me what I do, I say radio host because it's much easier to explain. <laughs> like, if I just say NPR, they're like, not, and they understand. Um, well, you know, I mean, radio is uh, radio is linear uh and it's a medium in which you the you know the average listening time is 5 10 15 minutes um so it's sort of a drop in medium and it's also something where it's organized by channel much more strongly than anything on the internet because people you know have whatever it is four presets or three presets in their car that they actually use and they go to those presets because they want that particular experience that pushing that button delivers. So, you know, when my show Bullseye is, you know, my show Bullseye is on NPR stations around the country, and so part of our goal in creating that program is to create something that if someone pushes the button that you know says number one on it, hopefully that's, that's preset number one is their local NPR station. Um, but if they push that button, they will get something that they can get something out of right away no matter where they come into in the program, uh, something that is has at least some consistency with their overall experience of listening to that public radio station, something that means something to them no matter who they are, given the fact that they didn't necessarily choose to listen to Bullseye. They just chose to listen to public radio um, and so on and so forth. And – you know, the podcast version of Bullseye is somewhat different from the radio version um, in the same way that Roman Mars's show is different in podcast and, and on the radio. It's cut differently, essentially. Basically, the difference between the two shows is, you know, on the podcast, we make an edit, which is like, what do we think is the best stuff of this? Mm-hmm. And then once we've done that, uh, sometimes there's a second edit, which is, uh, what do we think is the best stuff of this that we can fit into 59 minutes, which is the length of a, of an hour-long radio show? As confusing as that may sound. But if you contrast that with, say, Jordan Jesse Go, my comedy chat show, which is podcast only, Jordan Jesse Go is a show that we would never, we we never have to worry about, did someone start in the middle? It's a show where... We have an expectation that someone who's listening to it chose to listen to it. They may be a new listener, so you know we we explain what's going on. But it, there's no like come there's no coming completely. There's no nobody is pushing the button for Jordan Jesse Go expecting to get Morning Edition, and so it, it, we can make a very different kind of product. And you know also. You know, with any of our shows at MaximumFun.org, and we now have uh, 12 or 14 podcasts, something like that, and we've got three coming in. That's an exclusive for you. Oh, excellent. Uh, With any of our shows, you know, we can make something that is specifically for some group of people that wouldn't mean anything to people outside of that group. And public radio listeners – you know, what is the what is that group? That group is like college-educated people, basically, older college-educated people mostly, like civically engaged, which typically means older. And that's like a broad demographic group. But like if we wanted to, we could make The Hammer Show, and it's just for enthusiasts of, of hammers or MC Hammer, either way. We could go either way with it. A lot of people like the pants, so. Yeah, and like that might be one in 500 people, but one in 500 Americans is still, you know, half a million people. Well, I say there was something that happened in public
0: radio a few years ago. Uh, I was used to be a regular guest, a weekly guest in a show in uh, Seattle, uh, and – the measurement tools changed, and suddenly public radio stations discovered that everyone was lying about how they listened, and it changed the format, I think, for most stations. And what you describe as these the, that five- to ten-minute period, program directors knew that. They knew that instinctively, but all the Arbitron or Nielsen or whatever results they're getting back said – people said oh i listen to this much of it i tune in and they didn't they got one of those those devices that actually listen to what people are doing they they pick up the radio signal or whatever they the difference it. was
1: yeah. previously Writing the, the ratings they wrote in a diary they yeah. took they took notes on and reported back what they had listened to and they were noble and yeah and um and that was exchanged for a little like pager sized thing that you wear on your belt that listens to what you're listening to on the radio so or watching on television at any given time
0: precise and so you know exactly so people who say i watch this i watch uh, the mcneil Air Report, or, the, or whichever the show that's called now—that's yeah. how long since I watch regular television—they actually are watching, you know, local Fox News. And uh, but it transformed radio, uh, public radio, to some extent. Is I know stations uh, realized at one point they thought they had a listenership, say, of tens of thousands or hundred thousand plus, and it turns out at any given moment they had five or six thousand, which well, is not beyond the reach of a lot of podcasts. There are a lot of podcasts in the in the you know five thousand and up
1: range. Yeah, it changed a lot of it changed a lot of interesting things. I mean, one thing that happened, for example, here in Los Angeles, is there are two public radio stations in Los Angeles, KPCC and KCRW. And if you're listening to this not in L.A., uh, you may very well have heard of KCRW, and um, I'd be surprised if you've heard of KPCC, um, unless you're a public radio enthusiast. But when they installed those personal people meters, which is the little pagers you wear on your belt, what they found was—and they had always been neck and neck in the ratings—what they found was KPCC had almost double the audience of KCRW— and the reason the reason what they surmised that there was this huge discrepancy, and it was one of the biggest discrepancies, was because K- KCRW had a very well developed brand identity that was built around being slightly cool, as they have uh, AAA AAA music as in addition to um, in addition to NPR talk, that being uh, adult album alternative. Um it's like uh if I could describe it quickly I would say the music they play in Banana Republic <laughs> uh, like like hip 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 grown up music and um you know and so people aspired to be KCRW listeners and it turned out they were actually KPCC listeners <laughs> and you know and it turned out KCRW learned real quick that oh like on the one hand it burnishes our brand reputation to play this cool music next to this talk programming but it alienates our audience because there are people who like the music and not the talk and people who like the talk but not the music. And so when they reach to press that preset on their car stereo or when they set their dial once on their, you know, uh, alarm clock or, you know, the radio in their kitchen or whatever, they want the one that, that delivers the thing that they are expecting. You know, they, so they go to KPCC if they want the talk. and that instead of, So instead of being additive audiences, it was subtractive. Yeah, and that's been – I've seen that percolate
0: through – I mean, at KUOW, they now structure programs that way. I think a lot of public radio stations do, where instead of doing these longer programs, especially in local programming, and expecting people would listen to 20 minutes or 30 minutes or even an entire hour uh, with something while they're driving around. I mean, I realize that podcasts supplement that for all the public radio stations as well, but you're coming at it from the other angle. You had something that was independent that was primarily delivered as a podcast. I mean, I realize PRI also distributed Uh, sound of young america for a bit and uh and now you're an npr but but it it seems to validate the podcast model to me that people intentionally decide to listen to something and we don't know i don't think there are still tools that let us know if someone actually listens to 100 percent of it i know some of the hosting services um maybe would provide that if you're actually streaming from them but when you download a file we know someone downloaded a file we don't know if they listen the whole thing but we assume if there's a consistent audience people aren't downloading files for naught right It seems like we have a better sense that there's an audience out there for what we're doing.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, it's a very different type of audience. I mean, I can tell you that with Bullseye, my public radio show, our audience on the radio, because we're just on in L.A. and New York and Philadelphia and Houston and, you know, all these big cities, our audience on the radio is four or five times what it is on the podcast. But, you know... I, I'll tell you what, one, one time for a couple of weeks, uh, we ran a promo for a survey, like a, we want to know what you think about the show survey. And we ran it on both the podcast and on the radio. And um, we got about, I think it was about 500 responses, something like that. And of those 500 responses, uh, there was three radio listeners. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that tells you the difference in the engagement. Uh, between a podcast listener and a radio listener. Not that there's no value in a radio listener. Yeah. There's significant value there. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, if you look at uh, Perry Home Companion, you know, their audience isn't coming to them via podcast. I mean, they have a significant podcast audience, I'm sure, but their audience is still traditional radio audience, and, you know, they can go around the country selling out 2,500-seat, three, 4,000-seat venues. You know, they can go play Red Rocks or whatever. But... It's a, yeah I mean podcast to radio is a very different level of engagement
0: well I've wondered also if um and I've heard this said a little bit that being on some kind of uh, you know broadcast radio system is an advertisement for the podcast as well is that you convert people over people discover the podcast and maybe other podcasts because they've heard a piece of it they won't necessarily maybe they'll go to the radio station site or if they're savvy they'll you know google bullseye and they'll find it and then they'll subscribe to make sure they get it I don't know if you hear about whether that happens or you see it in numbers as you Launched on NPR, if that changed the podcast downloads and and the rest of the the relationship there,
1: yeah, I mean we, we we're starting to we're starting to hear about that. Um, you know, ultimately, like we're doing two things. I think we're supporting a relationship with local public radio stations, which is a really powerful relationship that people have by giving them our show. You know, like people, I mean, I know, like I still have strong feelings about KPOO, KQED. Um, KALW in San Francisco, the public radio stations that I grew up listening to. And I even lived in San Francisco for uh, seven or eight years. And before that, I was in college for four years and didn't listen to them. So, you know, the people have really strong relationships with those stations because of the ubiquity of radio in our lives. It's a very small portion of people who have, who are um, technologically inclined enough to have... The level of ubiquity that radio has with a podcast, and so it's just sort of pervasive in a way, that, and community-based in a way that a podcast isn't.
0: You don't have to plan for radio. You plan for, or you make an effort, intentional effort for a podcast. But you don't have to plan to listen to radio.
1: I mean, the average the average person has, I think, it's seven or eight radios. Um, Is that Right? Oh, yeah. between cars and stuff think in about, the house, you know, and... cars, stuff in the house. Um, you know, That's a Walkman, uh, a Zune. Uh, <laughs> yes, there's well at least five know, of those. I things. have a Windows phone that has a that has a radio, you mm-hmm. know, and I listen to the radio from time to time on it. You know, there's just radios are always around. You know, I can tur- like in my house. I sometimes I listen to podcasts when I'm doing stuff that I'm consuming audio, but a lot of times I'm just listening to the radio, and I'm a professional podcaster. <laughs>
0: You know what I mean? Well, there's some serendipity too, right? Is that there's things you'll hear on the radio that you wouldn't have known that you would hear unless you were just listening.
1: Yeah, and there's also, you know, I mean, there obviously there's other obvious stuff. I mean, there's, you know, the advantages of being live and in terms of news, which is a big thing for public radio obviously. You know, there's there's a million I I don't think radio's going anywhere. I I think the the piece of the pie will continue to shrink, but I don't think it I'm not I'm not worried about radio that much. We'll find a new balance. Well, you
0: came out of radio, out of college radio, and this is something – what you're doing now is – seems to be an extension of what you've done your entire adult life. This is – I realize we were talking before the podcast. You had a job – after college at one point for a few years, but that this is... Uh, I was unemployed after college for a Oh, while. my gosh. Well, yeah, this is... uh I stunk. The millennial... Are you a millennium millennial? I think I'm, a, mille- yeah, I'm barely, a millennial, yeah. Barely, so hey, too, well. know, I'm a millennial, yeah. That's barely, so it's old you know, I'm a solid millennial. I don't know what... I guess I'm Gen
1: X. I'm not sure. When I'm I a to, solid millennial. I just happen to be a little bit bald. When I went to... I'm the kind of millennial that remembers <laughs> when we were called Generation Y. I, uh, when I graduated college,
0: I was not expected to have a crippling student loan debt. That's how old I am. I actually was able to pay off my loans and not go bankrupt. So uh, that's that's the gap at the age cap.
1: I, I was lucky enough to have a disabled veteran father. Uh, and I put "lucky" in quotes there. Um, the, the that was system. the only reason. Yeah, that was the only reason I didn't graduate from college with crippling loan debt. Oh I'm God. luckily I'm crippled by my wife's uh, law school loan debt. Oh, that's so. good. At least
0: you're participating in the system. It's yeah. very important. But but so you went to University of California at Santa Cruz. Yeah, and um, which is known for being. I grew up in Eugene, Oregon. They're connected by underground railroad. Everyone moves between mm-hmm. the two. And um, these are towns that are they're, they're countercultural. Although I don't know what counterculture means anymore because everyone supposedly wants to be counterculture these days, uh, but it was a place where you could experiment. I mean, both imagine the city, the university, and the radio station. It gave yeah, I mean, you room
1: to explore. I think, if you ask me, UC Santa Cruz is one of the best backup schools in California. <laughs> 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 that is the left-handedest compliment I've ever heard in my life.
0: It's good, but it's a good school, right? You had a good time. It team. is. It's a, a, good it's a
1: very there. good school. Um, and it, you know, it's funny, like, it it developed with this, quote-unquote, alternative reputation, it, and I think, especially in the early years, it was genuinely alternative. I mean, um, I had a few professors during my tenure who uh, had been founding professors there, and they they talked a lot about what it was like the first ten years or so. And I've actually had a few, like uh, uh, the writer Ren Wexler, uh, Lawrence Wexler, uh, uh, who is a, you know, he's a a you know, New Yorkery type journalist, uh, a real legendary journalist uh, and nonfiction writer. He uh, he went to Santa Cruz in the early days and he was telling me all about it. I was like, yeah, I don't recognize that. <laughs> but it is definitely a place where, um, uh, where you can s- smoke marijuana openly in many areas. <laughs> like not all places are places where you can smoke marijuana openly, but there are significant marijuana smoking but on the other hand you know it's funny like we would always win best party school or whatever but it was it it was because you got a lot of points for hallucinogens and marijuana Mm -hmm. and and uh relative to drinking because drinking is legal Mm -hmm. um and like the the binge drinking rates like i don't like the things that I hear about about college from people, like giant insane parties where people are doing keg stands. Relatively little of that stuff, uh, but plenty, plenty of people being like, "Cool out right now, man. I'm on mushrooms." Right,
0: right. That's great. It's pervasive. So that's what Eugene was.
1: Like. I grew up there in the in the 1980s. That's what Eugene was. A lot like to. It. It was very, very mellow. But it's also, I mean, the other thing about Santa Cruz that's funny is it's also, it's a science school mm-hmm. uh, more than anything else. Um, you know, it's greatest, the, the best department in Santa Cruz is physics and marine biology. You know, the physics department is the best, or at least when I was there was the best undergrad physics in the country because there was no graduate program. So all these legendary physicists who worked at Lawrence Livermore Labs taught at Santa Cruz and they taught undergrads. But because it's so – because it's like substantially a science school, I mean, it, there's also – I mean, it's just like a lot of squares. And even in the four years that I was there, the number of squares increased. So it's not like the crazy hippie paradise that people imagine, although it is more fun to joke about that. So I want to ask, did the number of squares increase exponentially? Is the question. <laughs> right.
0: But in that environment, did you go – you didn't go for communications there, I'm assuming. No, you I was an for, American studies major. Of course, I could say. That actually shows. American yeah. Studies is a great field because it takes – I mean, because it encompasses popular culture, which you're clearly mm-hmm. interested in, Americana and the rest of it. it but how did uh, how did your studies shape what you did on the air? Were they totally unrelated things and you just wanted to goof around? I just you curious know, the origin of that I show. think
1: at this point my, uh, my experience in that has shaped what I do now. Mm. But, you know, honestly, my mom is a college professor and she teaches culture studies and uh, interdisciplinary humanities stuff. And so – like, just being in my house, it was at least as much, like, I didn't really pay attention in college or do any homework or <laughs> anything like that, but just sort of, it had already sort of seeped in. Yeah, I mean, I mostly chose American Studies because it seemed like the the path of least <laughs> resistance. I was like, oh, cool, I'll just write papers about rap music. I already like rap music. Um, but yeah, I mean, I had a friend who was a physics major. And I just remember him doing all this homework, oh, yeah. just all the time doing homework. And I was like, oh, I hate homework. I can never do that much homework. I was a graphic design major, yeah. and we always laughed at
0: the architects because they were updated these 24-hour stints, and we're like, we're done. Like, we've done our work. It's up on the wall, and you guys are oh. not sleeping for a week.
1: Yeah, I, I, I worked very not hard in college. Um, but um, but yeah, it's, it turns out, I mean, the, the theory stuff— um, that I learned is, is, and that I, you know, and that I knew going in just from the dinner table, um, in my childhood, as it's certainly significant in, in what I do, especially specifically on bullseye, you know, my understand I, there was no ethnic studies majors. Uh, there were ethnic studies courses, but no majors in ethnic studies. If there had been, I probably would have been in African American studies based on my course load, uh, major, uh. Maybe I wouldn't have because I would have been too self-conscious about that. That would have been ridiculous. But, uh, yeah, but I I think that stuff particularly – like I'm stronger on that stuff than I am on women's studies, for example – um, but I think that stuff particularly shapes how you know what I do on Bullseye in a variety of ways.
0: I'm curious too about I don't know if I want to call it earnestness. Now, I mean, you're associated with with this movement, right? Like you're the you're the new sincerity, one of the spokespeople of it. It's I, Wikipedia is a wonderful place to yeah. find out exactly what's not exactly about somebody, and um, I love this approach to the world, regardless of of <laughs> whether you're the spokesperson for it. But you've written about this, and I wonder if that comes out of uh, studying history or pursuing the life course you have that you're sick of irony. You're sick of well, people I, always trying to tear down instead of build up.
1: I think it's a, gener, I think it's a sort of a generational thing. And, you know, it, what we thought of as the new sincerity, which essentially was a goof that we thought of when, you know, when we were all 22. But what we thought of as the new sincerity wasn't just sincerity. That's why it was called the new sincerity. <laughs> it was more of just a kind of embrace of... Um, first of all, uh, a rejection of the sort of more corrosive parts of irony, particularly in terms of cultural production and consumption, which, which I associate with Generation X as a, uh, you know, as a, someone who's one, one step down and, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not interested in that stuff. I just think it's a waste of your life. And, but at the same time, like that doesn't mean that I only want to watch Mike Lee movies. Um, Like I do love Mike Lee movies as it happens. But what happened is basically we were sitting at the lunch table or whatever in the dining hall one day and a friend of ours named Rebecca was upset because she couldn't tell whether we were joking or not. And (laughs) um, so we were like, well, it sort of doesn't – like there's a sort of world that we live in where – every everything both is and isn't a joke like just because something is a joke doesn't mean it doesn't have weight and consequence and just because something has weight and consequence doesn't mean it's not ridiculous or funny and you know like an example of that is like Bootsy Collins who's uh-huh. been a guest on Bulls Eye's a super amazing guy like Bootsy is the whole parliament funkadelic thing is totally absurd i mean it's it's and it's funny it's very funny and intentionally so And it's intentionally absurd and crazy and wild and out of control. And, you know, Bootsy wears star-shaped sunglasses and plays a star-shaped bass and uh, has weird catchphrases and stuff like that. But it's also, you know, a powerful discursive mode. Like it is about something and it has meaning and it is legitimately wonderful. And so when we conceived of this, when when we developed this, I can't tell if you're joking or not, or when I – developed a sort of semi-joking thesis around this. It was about that idea, like something that is uh, big and ridiculous, uh, perhaps too big and ridiculous to kind of take in in one gaze, you know, like something that stretches beyond the edges of your comprehension. But rather than reacting to that by playing it cool, withdrawing yourself from it, embracing it. You know another person, another person who's a real hero of mine in that department is Andrew WK, mm-hmm. uh, who's also, I mean, I'm I'm honored to call him a friend, though we talk once every four years. <laughs> uh, we're not actually friends, but Andrew's friends with everyone. And like Andrew is, uh, you know, people might know him as the man behind the hit song "Party Hard" about ten years ago, but also he has more recently become famous as the king of partying. And the thing about Andrew is, when he came out, people were like, "Is this guy a joke? Is this some kind of satire of rock music, or is he an asshole? Mm-hmm. Because we're tired, we we assume that, he, uh, or is he Sammy Hagar or whatever? Just a you know a crazy dipshit." Uh, and sorry if people love Sammy Hagar. I, I can, <laughs> there are ways that I, I can totally understand if you love Sammy Hagar. He's fun. But what Andrew actually was, was someone who was deeply committed to this insane level of passion for life and caring for other people um, that he expressed through these, you know, ridiculous but also wonderful songs. And um, now he's sort of taken this path of expanding that, you know, he has a beautiful, an absolutely beautiful advice column in The Village Voice, And I think it's a perfect expression of his philosophy. And, you know, I mean, he, you know, he goes to the brony convention or whatever, and he's not a brony. That's not why he goes, but he goes because he's embracing that the element of bronyism that is this, you know, engaging with this ridiculous thing in a a sincerely open-hearted way. Now, bronyism has elements of Irony in it that I don't care for, yeah, and also I'm not gonna, i don't I'm not that nuts about people just watching kids stuff who are adults, but that having been said, there are, the big thrust of that you know is a is a wonderful thing, I think
0: Let's pause for a moment, so I can tell you about ninety nine designs, which is this week's sponsor, and if you listen to the end of this message, there's a special offer for new disruptors listeners. You know as well as I do probably how hard it is to get something designed professionally. It's not that there aren't a ton of graphic designers out there who can do the work. It's hard to find the people you want who can do the work at the price you can afford for the scale of project and can deliver on a fast schedule. Most of what we need, we need fast. And now when you're working on a bigger project, you can go out and contract for things. That's fine. But if you need a new logo, a t-shirt, some kind of design that's got a finite scope to it, Being able to get it done fast and reliably is important, and that's what 99designs offers. That's the basis of their business. You go to them, and you sketch out the nature of your project. Do you need a T-shirt, a logo, a website design, a car wrap, a book cover? Whatever you need, you go there. You specify what you want, and then designers from their network of over 310,000 professionals worldwide will offer sketches and ideas. You get a pick from the best of those and then work to refine that with the designer. Within a week, you'll have your results. Sometimes it's even faster. Because you're working through 99 Designs, you don't have to negotiate a rate. That's already set ahead of time. You, you know what you're going to pay and you know how you're going to pay it. 99designs backs up its work. So not only is it fast and affordable, professional, and high quality, there's 100% money-back guarantee. So even if the final design you get, it's not what you need, you don't feel like the results are what you want, boom, 100% money-back guarantee. But their process ensures that you're going to find something you like because you're going to have dozens of people competing for your work. It won't just be one person you find and then you have to go to the next. This is a great way to narrow down 99 Designs removes the friction. They make this process seamless. They create a marketplace in which you can get a consistent result, and the designers get work that they wouldn't have found otherwise. Everybody wins, which is exactly the kind of disruption I like and like to talk about on this show. So how do you get started with this? You go to 99designs.com slash disruptors. That's numeral 9 numeral nine designs.com slash disruptors. And you'll get a $99 power pack of services at no cost today and give this new way of getting design done consistently fast and reliably a chance. And now back to the podcast. Well, I wonder if there's elements of that in um, – there's two things that, that I thought of. One is the Museum of Jurassic Technology. And,
1: That's a 10 out of 10. Yeah,
0: exactly. And it's and speaking of Lawrence Wexler, he wrote a book about it, of course, yeah. that made it popular. Uh, every time I come to L.A., if I can, I get to Culver City and go there. I was there a few months ago. hadn't been for years. And I see this man walking, carrying an odd object I can't identify. And, of course, I go up to him and say, excuse me, are you Mr. Wilson? He says, yes, I just I, I love your museum. He said, thank you. And he went on with this incomprehensible object. And there's no – there's no irony in the place, right? I mean, you go in there and it's presented it's, – I think Will Ferrell versus Jim Carrey. One of the things that I think makes Will Ferrell's roles powerful even in stupid comedies is he's completely – he's in a serious movie. Elf is a serious – for the character Elf he plays, that guy is actually uh, doing his life. It just happens – the circumstantially it's different. Jim Carrey mugs at the camera. He, wants, he needs to be into the joke. He needs to make fun of people as opposed to a – it's not even a faux earnestness, but a Museum of Jurassic Technology does Yeah, Marine of
1: Te- Museum of Jurassic Technology is one of the most significant things in my life, mm. I would say. I did not know that. Um, yeah, I mean, they had – before he opened the museum in Culver City, there was like a traveling exhibition um, that I saw in San Francisco. Uh, according to my mom, um, and I believe her about this, but she is also uh, excitable. <laughs> Um, Let's say. In in the narrative sense. Unreliable. She's an unreliable narrator. Um, But according to my mom, that's what we went to see the day of the earthquake in San Francisco in 1989. Oh, my goodness. But, uh, yeah, I mean, what the Jurassic Technology – Museum of Jurassic Technology is, for folks who don't know, is it's a storefront museum in Culver City, which is the most nondescript (laughs) – Place. I mean, it's quote unquote hip now, some parts of Culver City, but you wouldn't know it if you went to Culver City like a lot of L.A. And uh, it's just in a storefront that could could otherwise be a vaping store. Um, and basically, it's like a dark, hushed, beautiful museum uh, that is in the spirit of probably a 19th century museum, a little bit of 18th century, but mostly like a 19th century museum wherein the contents uh, are both uh both factual and fictional uh, and no uh, no distinguishing is done between the t- those two things and essentially what it is is just an experience of the idea of you know the reverence of of art and knowledge um rather than the you know rather than trying to find out what is true and it's it's this kind of 19th it's this very 19th century idea uh if i may harken back to my american popular culture uh, civil war to world war 1 class um that i took in in college but it's a very 19th century idea of exploring liminality you know living in two worlds at once as you know as a an agrarian nation becomes an urban nation and you know, if you look at like a, a president like P. T. Barnum, where you know one of the big like the thing that the Museum of Jurassic Technology is like most to me is the signs in the P. T. Barnum Museum in New York that famously said "This way to the egress <laughs> um, and people would go th- expecting that it was one of his crazy creatures, but it would just be a door out and then into the alley and then they would have to pay to get back in again but they they weren't angry they're delighted because that's part of the experience or the rise of the con man or or whatever like all of these things are all tied in together and that's what the MJT ties into along with the kind of uh, along with the you know the way that art looks for truth relative to the way that science looks for truth.
0: It's also hard in an age where we have the entire world's knowledge at our fingertips, allegedly, not always accurately, to find something new, something that surprises you or something you don't, you know, something that you cannot determine on its face is true or not. And I think one of the great things about the museum is the things that seem most improbable turn out to be actually factual The things that are most likely or false.
1: Yeah, and I think, and they are, um, they've always been, they're a little too complicated to explain mm-hmm. and unfamiliar to people uh, for me to generally use as an example of the new sincerity. But, yeah, that that is something that I thought about. Now, I will give all of this with the proviso that the new sincerity is a goof that I thought of when I was 22. It resonates, though, and I feel like – but there's a through
0: line, isn't there, for your yeah. career is that regardless of how serious you were about it then is that you celebrate things that are great. And there was – a point in time, maybe it was reaction to the nineteen eighties, nineteen nineties. I don't know. My generation, everyone I went to college with went into management consulting or got a law degree, which is horrible. And um I got a degree in art and I do podcasting and, and write articles now. Well so. I
1: I'll tell you what our the turning point for us was. Mm. When we were in college and Jordan, who does Jordan Jesse Go With Me, my comedy show, co-hosted uh my radio show back in those days. Along with our friend Gene, we booked screech from Saved by the Bell, Dustin Dustin Diamond, on the program, and we thought he was doing a show in Santa Cruz, which was so rare. Usually when we booked interview guests on the show, it was to promote something in San Francisco, and the truth was nobody was ever going to go from Santa Cruz to San Francisco to go to one of these shows. We just wanted to talk to Matt Besser or whatever. And in this case, Dustin Diamond was actually doing a show in Santa Cruz, and we're like, well... We'll talk to Dustin Diamond. We'll we'll find out like what it was like to be on Saved by the Bell because that is kind of an interesting subject. Like what is it like to be on a show that every person between the ages of 8 and 13 is obsessed with? Um, like what is that experience like? We figure we'll talk to him about that, right? And also he had a, at the time a math rock band and he had just put out a chess instructional VHS. So we're like we'll talk to him about this. Turns out at least on the air – at that time, haven't met him since. He was an execrable human being, <laughs> just a horrible person.
0: <laughs> just he was just
1: telling these street jokes, uh, street jokes being like a joke you could your uncle tells you or whatever uh, about like disabled people and just horrible off color jokes, and we we're just like maybe we should talk about. And he wouldn't talk about of the Bell." And we were like maybe you should maybe we should t-. like I remember at one point we had asked him a couple of save by the bell questions and he had sort of not wanted to, he'd said like oh I don't want to answer that and we were like I don't remember if it was me or Jordan or Gene but one of us asked him we were so sick of him that one of us asked him we just wanted him to answer a question about save by the bell we're like could you tell us who was can you rank the cast members of uh save by the bell roughly by height <laughs> <laughs> But, like, he was such a heel. He was such a horrible person. I remember he was telling those awful jokes, and then we were like, can you uh, can – uh we say let's talk about your act. And then he goes, this is my act. Oh, my God. And so what I thought was, look, if I have a megaphone and I'm using it to interview people, which was a significant part of what we did then and now is the bulk of what I do on the show now, I was like – why wouldn't I do it with people that are meritorious? Like, why would I choose people that I don't think are good Mm -hmm. just to, like, take them down a peg or something? Like, I have a a remarkable opportunity here. Maybe I should use it carefully because I just think, in some ways, it's easier to sell something that is about uh, this is bad because this is bad is a, you know, I don't know if you've read the various... uh, sociological studies that flip around the internet but uh sh- shared dislike of something is a much stronger bond oh, than yeah. shared like of something. So I think that's why even the good ones like I don't know vulture New York New York magazines pop culture blog often end up trending towards this sucks 15 reasons why. Well I believe you've had Linda Holmes uh, you've interviewed her yeah. here and she is a guiding
0: light for me too in the in the sort of more conventional public radio world because she works for NPR. I love pop culture happy hour. They try to find the good in things, she, they're enthusiastic in the fact that she ends with what made us happy this week, every week. I think that is a wonderful, even if they talk, if they're negative about something, they have things criticized, they end with something, and I think positivity with merit is worth celebrating, not that's, that's Pollyanism.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's the that's the part that I sometimes struggle to get over when we're marketing the show, or when, when I hear people try and describe it to someone else, or is the element that we are no less dis and sometimes people get upset with me when I don't like something. <laughs> because they're like, you're Mr. Positivity. And I'm like, I dislike definitely as much stuff as anyone else does, probably more, because I spend a lot of time with culture because that's my job. You know, I don't spend my time on it on my radio show for the reasons that I just outlined, but I don't think any of this works without discernment. So like, you know <laughs> I uh there's Plenty of culture that I have nothing but contempt for. <laughs> I'm not going to get involved in a whole list because you'd rather not. I'll just spe- make people feel bad. But. You
0: don't want to take your time to explicate that on the air because you don't feel it's additive to yeah, the world.
1: Who gives a shit? Yeah. yeah. I mean, like I get. I mean, there's some things that I will spend time on. Occasionally, I'll spend time on. Um, you know, like when when Modern Family uh, when Modern Family came on, uh, I watched the premiere and maybe the second episode. And we talked on Jordan Jesse Go, my comedy podcast, about how I felt like it was kind of retrograde and a little racist <laughs> and not that good. So, like, if something feels racist to me or uh, sexist, although, again, my theory is not as strong on sexism as it is on racism. But, like, if something has some kind of moral problem, sometimes I will engage it publicly. And once in a while, just on Twitter, I'll just post something like, I'm sick of talking about, I'm sick of people (laughs) talking about Space Jam, which I recently posted on Twitter. I think I may have even wrote, fuck Space Jam. (laughs) But like, generally speaking, like, for things that I just don't think are that great, I recognize, especially having worked in the entertainment industry, having hosted television shows, having friends who write on television shows and work on, act on television shows. I recognize how difficult it is to make something good when there's that many moving pieces. And just sometimes it doesn't work, you know, like the greatest, you know, like I, I love Steven Soderbergh, you know, and uh, I didn't like Schizopolis very much, you know, like and it's not because Steven Soderbergh's not a brilliant filmmaker. It's just because, you know, even if you're really good, it's just really hard to make stuff. And sometimes it's not that good. Like, I don't need to run that guy down for that unless there's something like morally corrupt about it. Well, one of the
0: things that's come out is people have um, gotten, more people have gotten megaphones, like yourself, uh, like myself, like uh, uh, people, not just in podcasting, world, but all over, Etsy and Kickstarter. And there's a lot of tools that let people who otherwise couldn't bring something into the world, usually with a commercial angle and sometimes just purely aesthetic. They've been given tools that let them do this. But that means that... There's more stuff being produced by people who aren't necessarily uh, fully professionally dedicated to something. And some of that's going to be crap. And maybe a big chunk of it's going to be crap. But it's going to be more authentically expressed. Where do you fall on that? I guess there's not a spectrum, but like the, the issue of... I'm pretty crappy and very authentic. <laughs> <laughs> not you personally. Not you personally. You're very professional. Uh, I'm sorry. You can't be 10 years in podcasting without being a professional podcaster. It's, it's not allowed. But, I mean, I think there's this... Um, People are seeking a sense of authenticity. I've often wondered, why does anyone ever want someone's autograph unless they're trying to sell it on eBay now, which is valueless because they're abundant. But in the past, why did you want someone to sign something? It was an authentic experience that you'd actually encountered this individual. And I've wondered that about... If we are in the middle of a cultural shift or if I'm in the middle of a bubble, and I think it's both. I think I am in a bubble because I work in the tech world. And I've written about technology and I follow this stuff closely. But then I look at X tens of millions of people on Twitter, X millions of people participating at Etsy, X millions of people uh, who are contributing to Kickstarter, uh, even if there's only you know, a few hundred thousand projects. Are we in the middle of something that's a profound cultural change or does it affect you know 1% of people and it is just one small bubble of what's happening?
1: No, I think it is a profound cultural change. I don't – you know, it's funny. Like I think that it can be both a profound cultural change and not be, meet people's expectations. <laughs> one of the things that was like the, one of the most powerful lessons that I ever got in making stuff was five, six, se- seven years ago. I don't know. A number of years ago now we did, uh, we did my show in Chicago at the Second City and Steve Albini was the guest And a legendary rock and roll producer and very DIY oriented, always has been. And Albini said, I asked him about the future of the music business as I'm sure many people had in the past and many people will continue to do in the future because he's sort of an Oracle type and he has a strong opinion about everything. And, uh, what he said was he thought music was sort of like tennis, which is to say there's definitely some people who make money from tennis and there's people who get rich from tennis, uh, And there's lots and lots of people who love tennis and participating in tennis, watching tennis, whatever. Most of those people don't expect to make a living or whatever from tennis. And that's fine as far as he was concerned. Like, it's as in fact, the internet had spread music, the appreciation of music to more people and made it easier for it to be a part of people's lives as a performer, as a recording artist, as a consumer, in every area. And the fact that that didn't also correspond with all of those people making their living from that uh, was totally okay. And I think that there are lots of new ways to make money from creative work. And I know because I've pursued many of them. And, you know, when I – like I I sometimes give a talk called Make Your Thing about um, doing independent creative work, independent creative work. And like one of the things that I try and emphasize is – Think about what is the value to you of the work that you're doing because you have to – you do have to make a living to eat and maybe you have the opportunity to make a living in some other – in some way that's – you know, there's a lot of ways to make a living, especially if you have skills or education. Uh, but either way, you know, you can make a basic living in a job that's really easy, you know. Um, you know, you can make a – take a $10 an hour uh, job as a security guard. Um You know, I had jobs like that for the first eight years of my career or something like that. I was a receptionist. Uh, You know, you can um, work half time at a well-paid, demanding job and spend the rest of your time building your model railroad or whatever your thing is. You can uh, accept the fact that you're not going to make much money from your creative work and just live on very little money. I also did that for quite a while. Um, You know, I mean, there was a a long stretch where I made less than $17,000 in every single year. And uh, I peaked out at $17,000 <laughs> one year. And, you know, all of those are, like, totally valid ways to go. You know, once you've got food and shelter, you know, which is, that's a project number one, there's a lot of opportunities that are sort of in between. Like, people think the choices are, I quit my job and make as much money as I'm making at my job, you know, writing songs, which is great for those people for whom it works. You know, my my friend Jonathan Colton did that and it worked out fucking awesome. You know, he makes way more money now, I think, than he probably ever did before. And he gets to write songs and spend time with his family, (laughs) you know. But, uh, you know, there's a lot of in-between things that are fine. I mean, a lot of the podcasters in our podcast network, aren't making a full-time living from their podcast. I'm sure you don't make a full-time living from this podcast. Oh, no. But and, it's very enjoyable. I'm glad, glad I do it. I don't make a full-time living from any of my podcasts. Mm-hmm. I probably, One or two of them I could probably eke out a living full-time from if I wanted to. But um, I want to talk uh, about the alignment with audience there, though, because that's that
0: thing. is like making a living, it's like there's this aggregate thing. We get money from different sources and it's related to audience. But building the audience seems to be – I mean that's the core of everything we do is how you find the audience. And you went – I mean – You had the years in the wilderness while you were producing this thing. People liked the show. You had a growing audience because you've been able to capitalize it. Do you feel
1: you cracked a nut for it or was it persistence? I mean in my case, I think A number one is you have to have a good product. Mm -hmm. And that's something that – I had Seth Godin on my show and I hate all kind – I hate all gurus. I do kind of like Seth Godin. I think Seth Godin is a good guy with good yeah. ideas. Very typical reaction to him. You know, like, yeah. um, I mean, I don't, I don't need to get all of my ideas in a two-paragraph narrative form, but I like Seth. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he, he was talking. He wrote a book about about this very question. And one of the questions that I had for him was, how does someone know if what they're doing is any good? Yes. And he said, that's the one thing that I don't have a have the right answer for. The best answer I can give is, if you've really dedicated your life to whatever this thing is, you will know whether your thing is any good. Like if you've if you're a, if you're an author, if you want to if you're a novelist, and you've spent your if you dedicated your life to novels, you've read a thousand novels, you know what a, you have some idea of what a good novel is. And you just have to either say yes or no that you gets know? into the
0: dunning-kruger effect though right is that the most, that how well how well you
1: become good at a task shapes whether you can evaluate whether you're good at the task yeah well you know i mean it is yes i guess that's true <laughs> so you know to some extent you have to you know try and see if it works mm-hmm. <laughs> i'm super i'm personally so super risk averse that i i sort of never quit anything mm-hmm. because i'm afraid to have to start over. So I'm a very careful iterator. I make very incremental improvements over long periods of time, which is not necessarily the best way to do it. You know, I mean, in terms of getting your work out there, your original question, uh, there's a couple of ways to do it. You have to start with really good work. I think if you're relying on the Internet, you should think about whether your work is work that someone would want to talk to someone else about. Uh, And why? Because if you're relying on it being good to generate that, uh, it's going to have to be pretty fucking good. Mm -hmm. Which is to say it's not just going to have to be good enough to, like, get published, whatever that might mean. You know, like, it can't be 70% good. If you want the goodness to be the thing that people talk to each other about, it's got to be 95% good. You know, it's got to be world-beating good but there's a lot of there's a bit I mean look at every fucking tumbler that everyone sends to you those are bullshit they're not even that good right. but there's but they someone sat down and thought I've got an idea that someone could tell someone else about and there are ways to think of things like that that aren't bullshit <laughs> you know what i mean yeah. i mean like if you take grantland for example the uh the pop culture and sports website that's That's a good example of something that's totally not bullshit Mm -hmm. that is something that someone would want to tell somebody about. If you're uh, that kind of guy – sorry, ladies who like Grantland, but I think you're looking at 90-10 probably. Um, If you're that kind of dude who loves Bill Simmons-y shit, Mm -hmm. which is to say the intersection of sports and pop culture with a little bit of humor but actually pretty smart, you're desperate for that kind of thing. And so when you get that – You're like, oh, I got to tell people about this, you know? And so if something markets itself is a big question that you should think about going in before you start doing something. Like when we're developing podcasts, that's something that I ask people. We don't always succeed in that department, but finding a way to make something that is both artistically satisfying and of high quality and satisfies those criteria are the two essential elements the other alternative is you can spend money, uh, which if you learn about marketing first, spend time and money learning about marketing first or hire somebody who's good at marketing, that will help. Um, you And you can also build relationships. I think building relationships, personal relationships really makes a big difference. I think, um, you know, like uh, just yesterday – I emailed with uh, Mark and Shanny from Boing Boing, mm-hmm. who have been, you know, internet and sometime real-life real friends of mine for 10 or 12 years. And it was a relationship that I developed cause I thought, basically because I thought, man, these guys are great. You know, like, <laughs> I was like, these guys are really, I yeah. really like what they do. Like, they really got, for me, it was about values and... Because I'm, I'm their, their perspective on things is probably a little more geek centric than mine. But I was, but in the early days of that stuff, I was like, these guys really like, they're, they're coming from a really good place on this stuff. Like I really like how they do this, and I like the cool stuff they find, and so I just like sent them an email and said, hey, I think your stuff is really cool, you know, like so, I don't remember, I, I probably did something useful for them, like find them a cool, some cool links, you know, like. I probably uh, maybe maybe I introduced Jenny to Casper Hauser, my favorite, my sketch comedy group I used to work with sometimes and are friends with who are totally brilliant and amazing. But like just like doing some stuff for some people that are useful, you know, volunteering your time uh, and helping someone that I mean, like all the basically all the people that work for me here in the office are people who I just had some kind of relationship with. And many of them it's because they just introduced themselves to me at some point. You know, like uh, Adam Lissagor, who I made put the first season of Put This On with, my menswear show, you know, Adam was just a guy that came to one of my shows, you know. And then I found out he was friends with a friend of mine. And then we ended up podcast touring together. And then I found out he was a filmmaker and he lived in L.A. And so we became dog park buddies. And you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So... Those kind of relationships which take effort are really helpful too. And I I also want to distinguish those from networking. I think networking is also useful. I can't bear to do it. Um, I know people who are really good at it and, um, uh, and it benefits them really significantly. I would – Yeah, I don't know. I can't even, I don't think I can even uh, explain the difference between what I'm talking about and networking. But in my mind, it has to do with, uh, in my mind, it has to do with one of them being an actual sincere interest in someone else. (laughs) That's it. I mean, that's it, isn't it? You're talking about when you,
0: all these things is you're reaching out because you're interested in something someone does or they come to you and they have a sincere interest, and in anything that occurs is a byproduct of that, as opposed to being the primary mercenary intent of the of the interaction. Right. Um, well, you've built up through this, you've built up you know, this kind of mini empire. It's getting bigger, as you said, and uh, diversification seems to be important, but it's tied directly into the audience. So you've got uh, Max FunCon, which uh, I've been hearing about for years, which sounds like a wonderful adult summer camp with really interesting things to hear and talk about and do. And now you've got the cruise, and you've got this growing podcast uh, empire, and you've got uh, your men's style site you're involved with. It's just you just funded the was it a third the third season of site third season of the we do, we
1: haven't we haven't we haven't planned out a third season of put this on yet. But our but the site honestly. <laughs> This site is so much more successful than anything at Maximum Fun. Like, it's one of the most <laughs> – it's funny. Like, it just – it sort of happened accidentally out of a sincere personal interest of mine mm-hmm. um, and in in menswear. And, uh, yeah, just one day we just looked up and there's 350,000 people oh, following gosh. us on Tumblr, you know? That's hilarious. So, yeah, like with – but even with that, like – We made the two video series, which was – the videos were the original idea. Mm -hmm. And it was really just an excuse for me to work with Adam Liskor because he was my buddy. Mm -hmm. But, like, even with that site, you know, we have advertisements uh, which aren't super lucrative because we don't do any of the shady advertising practices, zero of them. Like, we don't do any native advertising. We don't do any animated advertising even. We don't take any ads from anyone we don't like. We don't, you know – We only have a few small ads in the sidebar, et cetera, et cetera. Um, It, in fact, I took me. It was a lot of work, even just to figure out how to do like a tracking system for someone. (laughs) But uh, in addition to the ads, we also have like a freemium service where we find cool stuff on eBay and send it to people, and and sales on clothes, cool sales on clothes. That's like I don't remember what five bucks a month or something like that and uh we also have a pocket square of the month club called the gentlemen's association it's actually the pocket square of the every other month club but yeah we we make uh pocket squares here in a studio in Los Angeles by hand, hand sewn uh no 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 sewing machines involved out of vintage fabrics that i mostly vintage fabrics that i buy at shows and various places so, yeah, there's a
0: diversity of... So every single thing you're working on has a multiplicity of it separates into more different lines of, well, like the... Like- that might be why our bookkeeper is six months behind. Yeah. <laughs> well, so Max FunCon, it seemed to be part of this harbinger of new kinds of uh, conventions. Um, I just had Nicole Deeker on the show, who has been deeply involved with and launched her career at Intervention, which is a... Very affordable East Coast show. It's at in Rockville, or um, not Rockville, but it's in a, a smaller town in Maryland. That's reachable by by subway. It, the hotel is ninety dollars a night. The conference pass is forty dollars. It's for people who want to make you know comics and music and videos and so forth. And they their approach was the cheapest thing we could do to get people, in. They get, they're getting twelve hundred people this year. Um, and there, there, But there seems like there's a, a Brooklyn, uh, it's a Brooklyn beta, there's all these events. I mean, some of them are more maker oriented, some are more tech oriented, but a lot of them seem to be keyed to how do you unlock a sense of discovery, creativity, enjoyment with yourself. And Max FunCon seems to be both one of the progenitors of it and the intersection of a lot of those ideas. Why why did you launch a conference? Was it, I mean, I can ask you very, you know, pecuniarily, is it, was it, you know, we know that conferences make money. That's often a good thing. They can be very lucrative.
1: But where did the conference come out of? We knew that conferences make money, and that's obviously a good thing. They can be very lucrative. Um, It was like, it was, the first one was, we we started looking, I guess, now something like seven years ago, uh, maybe even more. I don't remember. And... um, I think just I had gone to Comic Con, and I thought it was a shit show. I thought it was horrible. i was like, this is the worst. This is awful. That's what people who love Comic Con say too. <laughs> it's uh, terrible. I I don't understand why anyone would go to Comic Con. It's the worst. Um, go to something else. I mean, go to something, but just that is what a horrible experience that you're paying them a lot of money to have, just so you can see a voice actor give shitty answers to. Uh, oh, Comic-Con's the worst. But uh, just buy comic books at the comic book store. You know what I mean? Like, there's a nice comic book store where you live, I'm sure. So I'd gone to Comic-Con. I thought, that's a shit show. I don't want to do that. And then we were looking at, like, we wanted to do something in real life. And we are looking at places, venues, different kinds of venues. And we found this place that we really liked, um, which we still use. And we could probably be a lot bigger if we weren't still using this place. But um, it's hard to recreate uh and it's like uh it is literally a summer camp during the summer although it's a s- family summer camp so it's it's a, n- a lot nicer than what you might be imagining um and during the year they it's owned by UCLA they they run it for uh they use it for academic conferences and um we went there and we were like oh this it just immediately made sense exactly what it was it was like great we have comedy shows at night during the day we have classes and lectures we have a couple of epic parties, um,
0: and who who comes to the event? Is it that? Is it that people are trying to find? I mean, there's the entertainment angle, but you're also trying to help them on some path in life. It seems like there's a there's a moral not a moral journey there's a a, a career or a personal journey in there too. It's like summer camp.
1: I think um, you know all of the people that come are in some way creative, but it's not. You know, it's a personal thing. It's not something that we're not selling people professional skills, which is what most of these things that are offering. Either they're offering ultra luxury or they're offering professional skills because those are the two things that people usually want to spend money on, honestly. But this is this, no, this is like a, uh, this is like a, it's like a place where you go to, spend time with other people that you that share your values. Mm-hmm. And it's also a place where you go to see some shows that are really amazing. Mm-hmm. Like the shows are something that you couldn't see anywhere else ever. So for the people, like there's a significant portion of the audience who loves comedy, and for them, you're just getting to see the greatest comedy lineup you could ever hope to see in a – stunning outdoor amphitheater and it's just for you and 150 of your friends and afterwards you're going to go hang out with the comics and have a specialty cocktail so but at the same time it's a it's also a community of people who want to make and create whether professionally or semi-professionally or on an amateur basis and so there you know there are many 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 professional and creative relationships have come out of it, and uh, romantic relationships. We've had marriages come out of it. In fact, on the cruise this year, I married a couple. Oh, that's excellent! The, uh, the cruise is in its second, third year. You want your third year? I'm going, going to have the next one will be the third. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's like a, what what we really wanted to create was a really special experience. We didn't want it to be a conference. In fact, we generally never call it a conference because conferences are shitty with panels. No fucking panels. Nobody wants to watch a panel. Mm -hmm. I don't understand who a panel is for besides a conference sponsor, maybe. That's it. (laughs) Panels are the worst thing ever. It's to pack a bunch of people onto the stage during the same hour. Dear Jesse, I thought you were really positive. Um, Here's the, the truth comes out. Yeah. I, the dark side of conference. Um, but yeah, no, we wanted it to be like a, just a really special magical experience for people in a place where, like summer camp, you would have uh, the kind of combination of memorable experiences and ritual and friendship where even, even just going for a few days would kind of transform your whole year. And the whole year you would be thinking about, I can't wait to go back um, and see my people. This is what people say about Burning Man, which is a whole other kind of thing. Yeah, that's for rich assholes. Well, now it is. (laughs) Now it is. It always was. Many of the people aren't assholes. I don't think they were – Again, coming from Eugene, Oregon. Even today, even today, I'm sure most of the people aren't assholes. But, the,
0: but it's people seek uh, people seeking a transformative life experience, and or or recognizing that there's an aspect of the life that they that is in their ordinary, you know, their quotidian. Uh, everything is not what they want it to be, or they know there's something that's missing, or they have something they want to do and they want to share. It sounds like that's the thing you're trying to facilitate is is let those people have an opportunity that does not exist most of the time.
1: Yeah, well I mean I just want it to be it's not like uh that feels a little Tony Robbins-y to mm. me. Um <laughs> if I'm totally honest. Like there's no walking on coals. I know I I'm the one oh, yeah. I'm the asshole that used the word rituals, but it's what I want is it for is for people to feel like they have they have a home with friends and just like a beautiful place that they can that they can kind of – it's like I want it to feel like – I wanted to feel like a comfortable chair that they visit every I, – like I want it to be like my wife's family has a cabin that belongs – half of it belongs to her grandparents. So once a year, her her part of the family, her parents get to go up there and they've gone up there every year for her entire life and it's just the cabin. And, um, you know, every year her dad fixes something and every year, her, you know, they they replace something with something. And and I wanted to feel – have that, that feeling that – I mean, because summer – I mean, summer camp. It's – for people who have gone – haven't gone to summer camp, sleepover summer camp, I think it's difficult to explain. I was lucky enough to be the scholarship kid at St. Dorothy's Rest Episcopal Camp in <laughs> Northern California. And what it is is – it's to create a world outside of your own world that has its own that has its own boundaries and rules and is special so it's not like it's not like you go in one end and you come out the other person a uh, different it's more right. like like a truly great sitcom like it's a place you go to to recenter yourself you know like uh, you go on a little journey there uh and at the end of it maybe you have come back to zero but it's somewhere where you can't wait to go back to.
0: And you've created this conference, the podcast, all the things you do. You've created the 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 uh convention, the MaxFunCon, Con and the cruise, the podcast, all these things that you do. They seem to come from such a genuine place of of making things that you want to exist, places that you want to call home too.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, basically like I don't I don't I'm not a natural-born businessman. Uh, in the sense that I don't have much of a profit drive. I don't care about scaling things. I don't, um, like, all of the things that would make, I don't care about finding ways to, like, uh, make my money work for me. (laughs) And so none of those things comes naturally to me. I mean, like, my mom is a college professor who went to graduate school who barely graduated from college and went to graduate school when I was a kid when she was in her 40s. My dad is worked in the peace movement his entire life and ended up founding an NGO that worked on third world development when I was a teenager and also went to graduate school uh when I was when he was in his my dad might have even been in his 50s. And so like the <laughs> The The idea that I would be grow up to be a businessman is, like, comical, <laughs> right? Like, it just would be absurd. No one in my family—my stepmother is uh, from Belfast in Northern Ireland and grew up in the middle of the Troubles and is, like, the most anarchist person you could ever meet. Like, just distrusts anyone with any power of any kind thinks that that is a sign that they're wrong, (laughs) that anyone who's had any kind of success of any kind, that's that's because they're cheating in some way. And so for me, rather than having this Silicon Valley outlook of trying to find the way to make the most money with the least number of employees (laughs) using software... (laughs) <laughs> which is the traditional and uh which is the traditional definition of disruptor or or robots those are coming morphs, Yeah, for, exactly. For exactly. What I what I think has been my MO has, through my li- life has been I want to do this. How can I make enough money from this or something else so that I can continue to do that thing that I want to do? <laughs> and now that's grown to 10 10 employees or something 8 to 10 employees and you know uh uh our, and and a bunch of independent podcasters that make a bunch of money from us and but uh but you know like we I got i appro- I'll give you an example I got approached by someone who who was sort of scouting out for somebody who was thinking about acquiring a podcast net more podcasts for their podcast network buying podcast networks. And he had bought some very successful podcasts and was thinking about buying more. He was like, would you ever think about selling? And I was like, I guess maybe I would think about selling. However, I should let you know what you would be buying would be my shows that I produce, plus a bunch of shows that are independently produced and have uh have like no-fault walk-away contracts where uh, at any time they can just leave. Mm-hmm. The only thing that's keeping them... Our relationship together is that they continue to want to work with us. So there's you're not buying anything. We don't own any of these people's shows. We all you're, get, you're getting like our lease, our employees, uh, which is a small group of people, a donor supported <laughs> business model. <laughs> like I don't think we're what you're looking for.
0: That's that's a that's a good place to be though. Is that you
1: you you can't sell out even if you wanted to because yeah I guess it's a good place to be. Although there's this great Todd Berry joke um, that I once had a nice discussion with Ian Mackay of Fugazi with. Yeah, yeah, I love him. Which is uh, 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 which is I I can't my Todd Berry impression is very poor, but uh, it's something like, hey, do you think uh, do you think Ian Mackay ever thought about. Uh, raising the price on concert tickets uh from $5 to $10. I think the drummer ever brought that up at a at a band meeting. He's like, "Hey, uh how about this? Uh, we charge $10 uh, and I don't have a roommate when I'm 4 <laughs> <laughs> Um so yeah. Sometimes I think I'm I'm uh, charging $5 when I should be charging $10, but we'll see. Well, Thank you very much. Everyone can find Jesse
0: Thorne and the 100 million things that he does at MaximumFun.org, where they can find podcasts and links to the Max FunCon and, and everything else you do. And thank you for inviting me into your studio to talk to you. Thank you for being on the show. You're welcome. And I apologize to everyone that goes
1: to Burning Man. I, I know that you're not an asshole. I got caught up in the moment.
0: They're not listening, they're there right now. Okay,
1: good. You can
0: now support the production of this podcast directly at patreon.com slash new disruptors. That's patreo dot com slash new disruptors. Support us at a level that starts at $1 per month. At higher levels, you can get our thanks on the air, T-shirts, and more. You can also sponsor this show Visit podlexing.com, P-O-D-L-E-X-I-N-G, for more details about how to get your product or service in front of the attractive and clever listeners of The New Disruptors. Our theme music is by Jeff Tolbert, who you'll find at jefftolbert.com, and our audio engineer is Michael Warner. Our podcast audio is hosted by SoundCloud. We're also a production of The Magazine, an electronic periodical for curious people with a technical bent. Find out more and read free articles at the-magazine.org. This podcast is licensed under the Creative Commons by NCND 3.0 license. Feel free to distribute it intact and with attribution to us by linking back to our site. We only ask you don't offer it for sale. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman. Please join us again next time. Thanks for listening.